Hello, good day, and congratulations to your ears for finding this podcast. It's episode 5 of Physics for Fish, and we're going over to the dark side. This week I talked to Scott Melville about dark energy, dark matter, and how the Earth knows the sun is there. Strap in, fish folks. It's a good one. Hello, Scott. Welcome to Physics for Fish. It's so wonderful to have you. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. So first of all, uh, what's your relationship with physics? How did you get into it? And what's your kind of research interest? Okay, well, I'm a research fellow at the University of Cambridge. Um, My research is really all about answering two very basic questions. How does the universe work? And why does it work that way? So these are, of course, very old questions. They've been, you know, head scratchers for for millennia. Yeah. But our generation is actually really very special because of the unprecedented experimental reach that we have. So just in the last maybe 100 years or so, we've been able to measure our universe on both incredibly small and incredibly large distances. So in fact, our, our range has expanded by a factor of about a million in both directions, wow. right? which, is, which is just insane, yeah. right? I mean, I mean in, in the 1900s, the, the smallest thing that they could measure was the size of the proton. But, but today we can measure lengths that are over a million times smaller. And in the other direction, the, the volume of the universe that we can see with our telescopes has, has really shot up by a factor of, of about a million. So we can now see very distant light coming to us from 50 billion light years away. Sure. So our, our view of the universe and, and everything in it has really opened up in, in a very big way just in the last century. So my job is to try and understand all of the, the new and unexpected things that, that we are discovering. So how does that new technology and that new reach that we've got, both on a big scale and a small scale, affect this question of how does the universe work? I mean, presumably it gives you a lot more answers and maybe some more questions. Yeah, I think that, you know, as as you uh, explore this kind of range of scales, you, you start to see that the ideas, the concepts that you cooked up as a, an earthbound terrestrial creature on the scales of about a meter, those ideas kind of usually work okay for like an order of magnitude in, in each direction, but really break down in very dramatic ways when you try and extrapolate all the way out to you know 50 billion light years, right? Then then a lot of your ideas really need overhauled. Anyone that was working more than 100 years ago, right? They, they were in this kind of sorry state of affairs where they had the, the wonderful experimental data um, re- really around uh, human scales, uh, which they could explain very well with, with their theories. And it's only as you start to really um, kind of push the boundaries of where you're making your measurements that you start to see see cracks in these theories. And then those cracks are exciting because they tell us where to um, try and improve or modify our ideas to really get at something more fundamental, mm. right? Clearly, if you had some fundamental theory of the universe and how it worked, it should, it should really capture that whole range, right? It should go from a millionth the size of a proton all the way up to, to 50 billion light years um, and, and make sense in all of those places. Yeah. Uh, but actually, we don't, we don't have anything nearly as, as successful at, at the moment. Um, really, what we have is something that's more kind of piece, piecewise. Like we have uh, ideas that work very well around human scales of about a meter, 
And then we have uh, ideas that work very well on very small scales and ideas that work very well on very large scales. And it's actually very difficult to try and join up all those dots over such a huge range of, of different distances. That sounds like it's really the, the main topic of physics at the moment um, in, in lots of different fields are trying to join those dots and kind of piece together different bits of the jigsaw, mm. as it were. Mm -hmm. So do you worry that, you know, 100 years in the future, somebody will have access to a thousand times or, or a million times more data than we've got at the moment and find that all of these theories that we're coming up with right now are no longer applicable on their length scales? Yeah, I, that's a fantastic question. And, uh, and philosophers have a name for this. It's called pessimistic meta-induction. It's a fun thing to Google. Uh, it, you know, it's the sort of thing that keeps philosophers of science up at night. Uh, and, and the idea is that every theory that we've ever had has been wrong. Yeah. So <laughs> chances are the theories that we have now also wrong. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so the way that, that I see the problem is, is that... Um, with every kind of new range of scales that, that opens up to us, we come up with, with new ideas that are perhaps closer to some fundamental uh, truth of nature, right? So, uh, for instance, Newton came up with lots of ideas about forces and, and how um, celestial bodies should move across the heavens and, and all this stuff. Yeah. And we now look at Newton's ideas and, and you know, it would be kind of cruel to say that he was wrong. <laughs> we sort of, we, we say something like, no, he was approximately correct. Like he's kind of capturing some emergent behavior, which is, which is true. Like it, it is true that if, you know, an apple falls from a tree, he, he has a really good equation that tells you how that should happen. Sure. Um, but then uh, as we, you know, start to probe say at larger length scales, then Albert Einstein comes along and has lots of new ideas uh, which replace uh, a lot of Newtons. Um, really, we see that as being some, uh, you know, extension of, of Newton's theory, which now uh, introduces some, some new you know, theoretical constructs, some exciting new ideas that now let us understand not just apples falling from trees, but also um, gives a much better handle on how the celestial bodies move around the heavens and, and so on. Yeah. Um, and there's always going to be some range of scales which we haven't probed yet. Um, and so there's always this possibility that you'll reach some energy scale or some length scale at which your theories need to be um, need to be changed. But uh, I think that's not reason to stop trying <laughs> to stop trying to explain uh, what we can see and to try and extrapolate as, as best we can and to really understand how is the universe working on uh, on on this really dramatic range of, of scale. Yeah, and I guess it keeps physicists humble, right? Uh, to know that maybe the things that they're doing now, you know, will be put into a different perspective in in a hundred years when we get access to better or further reaching technology. Yeah, absolutely. So these fish who I'm making this podcast for are living in a completely different part of the universe and don't really know anything about physics. So we kind of have to strip everything down to its really fundamental basic principles. So um, let's talk about dark energy. What is dark energy? Oh, yeah, good. So, so uh, this is definitely one of the big, the big puzzles that, that are facing uh, physicists and in particular cosmologists um, at the moment. So one of the things that we have recently discovered about the universe by looking at very, very large distances is, uh, is this thing that we call dark energy. Um, so maybe just to, to break the name down a little bit. So when, when we say that something is dark, uh, what that means is that it, it doesn't emit any light. Okay. And that it doesn't 
interact directly with the ordinary matter that makes up you and me. So really, we're talking about stuff that you can't see and that you can't touch. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. Uh, however, you can feel the gravitational effect that it has. That's how we know that it's there. Okay. So this is stuff that basically gravitates. So it has some effect on cosmological scales. If you, you look at how distant galaxies are all flying through space, uh, it, it looks as if there's some gravitational force pushing and pulling them. Uh, and then from that force, you can infer that there's some extra dark stuff that, that must be there. Otherwise, you know, the forces would be all wrong. Is that where it came from initially? What was the observation that led us to believe that this dark energy exists? So we only discovered this stuff in the, in the late 1990s, right? I think like 1998 or something. And um, because like you said, it's basically invisible, uh, except for this gravitational effect that it, that it has. Um, and so what happened in, in I think 1998 is, is they, were, they were looking at how very distant objects were receding from uh, how they were flying through space. Mm. Um, and they were trying, trying to really pin down what was going on gravitationally, right? What was causing this motion away from us through, through space. And, uh, and you can kind of play, play this game. You can, you can say, well, uh, let me look at all of the stuff that I can see in, uh, in the universe with my telescope, all the bright stars and planets, and I can add up all of, all of, that, um, all of that energy. Yeah. And I can compare it with the amount of, of energy that I would really need to have in order to explain this uh, gravitational force. Uh, and so you find that those two numbers are very, very different. Um, so that's why we invented this, uh, this dark energy to kind of balance the books and, and explain why there's this discrepancy between the gravitational forces that we see uh, and, the, and, the, and the matter and the energy that we actually um, can directly see with light. So it sounds like it's a kind of fix. We've got this problem and we've kind of come up with a hypothesis, if you like, to, to fix the problem, sort of put a sticky plaster over this gap between these, these two different numbers is that right yeah that's i think that's a that's a fair way to to say it so uh i mean maybe one thing that's worth pointing out is that uh, the size of the sticky plaster might, might make the bulk so <laughs> as far as far as we can tell right by looking at the kind of the largest structures in our universe and how they're evolving and pulling on each other gravitationally mm. this dark form of energy accounts for about 70 percent of all of the energy in the universe. So wow. it, it's actually the most abundant kind of energy. Sure. Um, but it's it's really the kind that we know the we know the least about, right? So so we've only recently been able to, to start pinning down what kind of properties this stuff has. I want to take a backward step here. Um, I want to just talk about what energy is. Because actually mm -hmm. it's one of those things that's all around us. And whatever kind of reality the fish are inhabiting, it'll be all around them as well. Mm -hmm. But we don't ever really talk about what it is or how to define energy yeah i think this is a good very interesting question especially for dinner parties cocktail parties that <laughs> kind of thing. Because depending on who you ask i think you'll get you'll get many different answers yes depending on what field the person you ask is coming from and i think all, all these answers are all you know at least partly correct so yeah um, for instance, the, the idea of energy that you often encounter in school sort of goes back to like the 1800s, right? It's this archaic way of, of bookkeeping, just a convenient way to track how a physical system evolves. Mm -hmm. So you introduce lots of different kinds of energy, it becomes a taxonomy problem, right? You learn about things like heat energy, sound energy, kinetic energy. And the idea is that in, a, in an isolated system, you can only convert energy from one kind to another 
but you can't change the total amount of energy that you have. Yeah. So that makes it possible to tell, you know, very nice narrative stories like, oh, this ball rolls down a slope. And what it's doing is it's converting one kind of energy, potential energy, into another kind of energy, kinetic energy. Yeah. So that's the the maybe the notion that that the fish would encounter if they if they went to school. If they went to school. Yeah. Uh, so um, for for cosmologists, right, or or at least you know for for people in my walk of life, um, we tend to just lump anything that gravitates. Uh, we would call it energy. Mm-hmm. I think that would be that would be fair to say. And energy and, and momentum. We sort of lump them all together and we say that that stuff all causes gravitational effects. Uh, so we're going to just call it all energy. And that, that includes all of the usual stuff that you learn about in school. It includes things like mass, it includes kinetic energy, um, but it also includes less familiar things. Like in principle, it includes the energy stored in quantum fields and other kind of things that you, you wouldn't see in like a high school uh, chemistry lab, but, but which are nonetheless important ingredients in our universe and do have observable effects. So I wanted to dig into that a bit more because, you know, it's very easy to think of energy being stored in something like petrol you know, or in a battery, like we kind of used to that idea of, you know, this thing contains potential energy, but can space contain energy and particularly empty space? You know, if there are no atoms, is it possible Mm -hmm. to contain energy within that? Yeah, very good. So dark energy is a bit um, special Mm -hmm. uh, in that it's, uh, it's very different from the kinds, the other kinds of energy that we know. Okay. Right. So the, the 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 weird thing about dark energy, really, I think, is that it um it it doesn't it doesn't dilute. So um, imagine that I gave you a box, right, of just ordinary gas. It's made of it's made of atoms. Yeah. Uh, and, and and so it has some energy by virtue of the fact that those atoms have a mass and they're moving around. Yeah. Now, um, if if you were to uh, expand your box, so you doubled the size of your box, uh, then this gas would become less dense. Right. There's just the same number of atoms moving around but now they have twice as much volume to move around in right so the the energy density is is a factor of two lower the same amount of energy just in twice as much volume um but dark energy is weird because it has the property that if i give you a box of dark energy and then you double the size of your box you now have twice as much dark energy right the energy density is always the same no matter if you make your box bigger or smaller so, you know, when, when faced with that observation, it's then very tempting to say that, oh, this energy is then more like a property of the space inside the box. You know, if I just give you an empty box and I say, oh, there's dark energy in this box, um, you would say that somehow it's the, it's the space that's really storing that energy. Therefore, when you make the box twice as big, you have twice as much space and therefore twice as much dark energy. <laughs> So you've handed me a box and told me that it's full of dark energy and I cannot see it um, and I cannot touch it. And I, I sort of, I don't seem to be able to interact with it in many ways, apart from its gravitational effects. So how do I know it's there? How can we prove that dark energy really is out there? I feel that you, you almost answered the question yourself, um, that, that you know that it's there gravitationally, right? If I gave you a box that was genuinely empty, whatever that means, that then you would expect it to have no gravitational effect on its environment whatsoever. Mm. But now if this box, I say, oh, it's full of this new stuff that I call dark energy, exciting <laughs> new product, that's going to have a gravitational effect on its surroundings. Sure. So if you have this box and you want to know what's inside, 
unfortunately you can't just look in the box because the stuff doesn't interact with light so you it'll look as if it's a completely empty box yes um but but if you had a sensitive enough uh, measuring device right you could measure the gravitational um forces near this box uh to try and tell what was what was inside it maybe this helps just to to pin down some of the the, the numbers that would be involved here so this um, dark energy uh, density that, that we think kind of fills our, our universe and accounts for the motion of distant galaxies, it's very, very small. That's the reason that we didn't really see it until, until 1998. Yeah. If your box was, was about a meter in, in size, uh, the, the dark energy in that box would, would gravitate about as much as four atoms of hydrogen, something like that. Wow. Right. So, so, so to actually measure that gravitational effect, it would be on par with measuring the gravitational field from, from single atoms, which, which has just never been done. That, that effect is much, much too small. And um, usually we need something like 10 to the power 20 atoms before we can start to measure their, their gravitational effects. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Um, yeah, so that, that's really why we, we probe this stuff using cosmology instead, right? R rather than me giving you a box. Um, which, which would be almost useless from the point of view of trying to conduct a dark energy experiment. Yeah. Uh, what, what we do instead is we, we use cosmology, right? Then we're looking at very, very large distances. We're basically looking at very large boxes, yeah. right? A, a box that's, that's large enough, you know, millions of light years across. And that box is now large enough to have enough dark energy in it that you can start to have some, some measurable uh, gravitational effect. So the universe is a giant box of dark energy. That's great. So my next question is about dark matter. I mean, they're both amazing names. Dark energy and dark matter feel like two sort of superhero villains to me. But how does dark matter fit into this picture? So the dark in dark matter really means exactly the same thing. Uh, so, so dark matter is how we describe any kind of matter which doesn't emit light mm -hmm. and doesn't interact directly with the ordinary matter that, that makes up you and me. Yeah. Um, so, so we only know that it's there through its gravitational effects. Again, if I give you a box of dark matter, uh, it would look completely empty and, and you would say, how do I know there's dark matter in this box? You would have to measure its gravitational. Effect. This, this box would have some, some gravitational forces around it that would tell you that there is something dark in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of came about in a very similar way to dark energy, but in a, in a different experiment. So the first evidence for, for dark matter really came from asking um, what is the, the total mass in a particular nearby galaxy? Mm -hmm. right? So, so you look at this uh, galaxy as closely as you can with your, your telescope and you count all of the stars and planets that you can see and you add up all of their masses mm -hmm. and, and you say, great, that's, that's one, one measure of how much mass is in this galaxy. But then you do a, a separate thing, right? You think, oh, I want to check that this is the right kind of ballpark. Yeah. So let me look at how this galaxy is behaving gravitationally. So how how, um, how fast is it spinning, for instance, and how does that attract other galaxies towards it? Mm -hmm. um, and, and you do this, this separate measurement and you find that the mass is way, way higher. Right. Right. So, so to, again, to balance that discrepancy, what we do is we say that in terms of the universe's overall budget, about 5% of the universe's overall energy is in ordinary matter, the stuff that makes up you and me. And then about 25% of it seems to be in this dark form of matter mm -hmm. which uh, which kind of lives inside galaxies to make them heavier than they would otherwise appear to be and then the remaining 70 percent is this dark energy which isn't tied to any particular galaxy it's just kind of spreads out through all of space and that's there to explain why distant galaxies are, are flying away from each other in the way that they are so if i have my box of dark energy and my box of dark matter mm -hmm. 
How are they different? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. The, the way we tell them apart, cosmologically speaking, is how the, this gravitational force changes when you change the size of your box. So dark matter behaves much like matter does, much like a regular box of gas. If, if, you, if you make the box bigger, um, the energy density gets smaller. Uh, whereas dark energy is the weird, you know, black sheep. It's the one that if you make the box bigger, then um, the energy density doesn't change. I see. Okay. So that's how you would tell the difference between a box of dark matter and, and a box of dark energy. Gotcha. And dark energy then sounds like it really is an anomaly. You know, it's unlike energy, it's unlike matter, and it's unlike dark matter. It's really quite weird. Yeah, I mean, because dark matter could be made of stuff. It could be made of some exotic new kind of atom that just uh, interacts very weakly with light. And, and so we've never kind of seen it directly. Um, but people, you know, build experiments to try and detect dark matter particles, right? We, we really think that it could, it could be made up of some, some smaller microscopic constituents, very much like the, you know, gases and other like ordinary stuff, mm. just based on how on this scaling property, when you make the box bigger, that, you know, it seems like there are some constituents in my dark matter box that are getting diluted in the normal way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, dark, dark energy really stands out as being as being particularly special mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, to try and come up with some microscopic description, right, to, to really ask, like, what is this stuff like made of? Uh, that, that's a very difficult question to answer, right? Because whatever it's made of, it, it, it really can't behave like the, you know, isolated atoms that we have grown so familiar with doing literally any other kind of physics. I'm beginning to think dark energy might be the strangest thing in physics. We can't see it, smell it, or touch it. We don't know what it's made from, and yet it makes up 70% of our universe. The only clue we have is gravity. Maybe I can say just a few words about how gravity works, or at least how, how we currently think about how gravity works. Yeah, that'd be great. So going back to Isaac Newton, right? He, he was the first one to really write down some, some decent equations that describe gravity. Mm. He had this idea, he had this theory, that uh, any massive object should exert a gravitational force, should pull on all other massive objects, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and his equation for this force, uh, it, it beautifully describes why apples fall from trees, right? Because they're pulled, they're pulled down towards the earth by gravity. The apple has a mass, you know, and, and the earth has a mass. And, and so these two things pull on each other. Yeah. Okay, but there's actually a couple of problems with Newton's idea, right? As successful as it was, let me tell you some of the things that it doesn't quite do right. So the, the first problem is really an observational one, which is that some objects don't have a mass, and yet they still feel gravity. Mm. So for instance, famous example of this is a beam of light. Right? Shine a beam of light, doesn't have any intrinsic mass, but it's still pulled by the sun, just like the planets are, mm -hmm. right? Still has some gravitational interaction with the sun, say. So, so clearly mass is not quite the thing that causes gravity. It's maybe one of the things that causes gravity, but the fact that light doesn't have any mass and yet gravitates means that it's only, you know, part of the picture. Yeah, yeah. The second problem that Newton's theory has is, is kind of more of a conceptual one, and it's maybe a, the trickier of the two problems. And the second problem is that for Newton, what is communicating this gravitational force, right? Usually if you want to exert a force on an object, you need some contact, mm. right? You need some connection between the two objects. Yeah. For instance, right now there's a pencil on my desk. So if I want to move this pencil, uh, I need to form some kind of connection with it, right? I need to reach out and touch it. Yeah. If, if there's nothing connecting me and the pencil, there's really no way I can expect to exert a force on it. 
So you could ask, well, what is, what is providing that gravitational connection between faraway objects, right? Like the Earth and the Sun. How, how does the Earth know that the Sun is there? How does it know that it needs to stay in a particular orbit? That's a great question. So, so these, are the, these are the kind of the two puzzles that in the early 1900s, Einstein came along and basically solved in one fell swoop all of these problems, right? Because Einstein came up with this improved theory of gravity, which, which we call general relativity. It solves these problems. And mm -hmm. um, the first thing that it does is it says that it's, it's not just mass that causes gravity, but actually any form of energy will cause gravitational effects. Right. And so this, this is why we now move from talking about masses to talking about energies. It, it's just more accurate, right? Because if you think about a beam of light, it doesn't have any mass, uh, but it does carry energy. And so that's why it bends around the sun. Gotcha. So that was the first difference between general relativity, Einstein's theory, and Newton's theory. Newton was all about the more massive an object is, uh, the more it will gravitate. And Einstein replaces that notion by saying the more energy something has, the more it'll gravitate. And so far, have we found that we observe that that happens? Yeah, absolutely. The way it happened historically is, is actually the other way around. Uh, Einstein came up with this brilliant new theory. Mm -hmm. um, in his new theory, he, he found that things should gravitate even if they don't have a mass. And then uh, various expeditions went out to remote parts of the world to measure a certain astronomical event that was going to take place on the other side of the sun. And they wanted to see whether the light from that faraway astronomical event was bent by the sun or not. Right. Um, so it was actually a prediction that then was verified. People actually weren't sure whether the light was going to be bent by the sun. And it turns out that it is. Again, it just explains why, why we, we regard Einstein as this unparalleled genius, right? Sure. So he actually came up with his theory to solve the second problem that I mentioned. So the, the second problem that I mentioned with, with Newton's idea was that there's, there's nothing connecting the Earth and the Sun. So how do they know about each other? Mm -hmm. This is really the thing that Einstein was trying to solve. Getting the, the right deflection of light, that was just a bonus. Yeah. Really, the second problem, this, this conceptual one, the way that Einstein's theory solves this problem is to say that it must be the empty space between objects which can communicate this gravitational force. Mm. Right, so the idea is that if... If you imagine for a moment that, that space is actually slightly elastic, right? If it can kind of bend and stretch a bit like a rubber band, that, then that would give a way for distant objects to know about each other, right? When the, the Earth is moving around the sun, something is happening to the space between the Earth and the sun, right? It's kind of bending in some way that lets the Earth know that there's a sun, you know, over on its left and therefore it should move in a certain way. And we're not talking about um, space, which is full of atoms. Like, you know, we're not even talking about air molecules. We're, we're literally talking about a vacuum, right? Yeah, this is a really radical notion. This, this is just empty space. Usually we think of space as being some kind of fixed reference system. Yeah. You know, like I can have a ruler, which is 30 centimeters long. And usually I, I kind of believe that it's going to be 30 centimeters long, no matter where I put it. Mm. It's just some like absolute measure of the size of space yeah um but that's actually not quite true uh, experimentally right if, if if the fish were to take a ruler mm -hmm. um and were to throw it towards a large mass uh, they, they would actually see it change its length right because really the mass is distorting the space around it sure right so that that's what they would see and where the story then gets really trippy uh, is that the same thing happens for time 
as well. Yes. So uh, if you if you do the same thing, usually we think we have like a stopwatch. You know, I have a I have a watch on my wrist. It tells the time. Uh, it tells the same time no matter where I am. Uh, that's that's not quite true. If you throw a watch um, towards a large mass, uh, you'll you'll see it slow down. So imagine that two fish have perfectly synchronized watches, mm. and uh, and so one of them stays out on their on their spacecraft, uh, and the other one comes down to Earth to mingle with the humans. And mm. um, what what they'll find is that the Earth fish's watch will slow down because of the Earth's gravity. And this this is not usually an effect you know that we see in everyday life just because it's really small. Yeah. And um, but but after maybe say a year of hanging out here on Earth. Uh, say our fish goes back to their spacecraft, is reunited with his buddy, and um, they could compare their their watches, and they would see that the difference is like a millisecond. Mm. So we're we're talking about a shift by much less than a second every year. So so it's really such a small effect that it's not something that that we had really noticed until in the early 1900s. Einstein started to to talk about it theoretically. Yeah. But it's something that we now routinely measure, and it's actually something that they need to correct for. In things like GPS satellites, right? If you take a really accurate clock and you put it into orbit, so you put a really accurate clock on a satellite, mm-hmm. uh, that satellite is now much higher uh, and it's moving around the Earth at some speed. And both of these effects change how that clock experiences time. So if, if you want to keep a clock that's in orbit, if you want to keep it synchronized with clocks that are on Earth, you need to make the small correction. Again, it's like a fraction of a second a year. But if you didn't make that correction, it would mean that you know after a few years, all of your GPS satellites would have horribly miscalibrated clocks. Sure, sure. So presumably, if you're if you're near a massive body like a black hole, the effect is is kind of ramped up in a significant way, mm. and it'll do really weird things to your rulers mm-hmm. and your clocks. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So this is why uh, general relativity and special relativity both share <laughs> share the word relativity. Um, <laughs> yeah, in special relativity, uh, the speed at which you go has has some effect on the time that you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, general relativity it, it's more to do with the acceleration that you feel um, as a result of the gravitational forces. Mm. And so, yeah, this is something that you you do experience on Earth. Say you live on the top floor of an apartment block, or you live on the ground floor of an apartment block. Over the course of your lifetime, there really will be some some difference, you know, on the order of a few seconds that builds up just because you've been living uh, farther away from the Earth uh, in a slightly lower gravitational field. Um, and, And that doesn't sound very impressive. But then, like you said, there's plenty of places in the universe where the gravitational fields are much stronger, like near a black hole, for instance, and then these effects become huge, right? Then, then it actually really, really matters how close you are to the black hole in terms of how, how fast or slow your clocks are gonna tick. So if you're building an apartment next to a black hole. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun, but this is something that comes up in, in popular science, right? Like the, the movie Interstellar is maybe the best known recent example yes. of this, right? Yeah, yeah. They play these games where uh, they go on some mission to some giant black hole and they orbit it for a little while. Uh, okay, well, I guess I don't want to give away spoilers <laughs> of this movie, but, but ultimately, uh, yeah, you know, when you're close to a black hole, then the time that you feel is, is going to be very different, right? People that aren't near the black hole are going to age much faster compared to you. Yes. For anyone who hasn't seen Interstellar, that, <laughs> that, that is what happens at the end. We've ruined it for you. We've made two different measurements of the curvature of space and time, right? Mm-hmm. One measurement we, we make using nearby galaxies. So we look at supernovae and how far they're flying away, and that gives you one estimate of how curved the the universe is. And then you can also try and measure the same curvature very, very far away. Mm -hmm. So you can use this very distant light 
from 50 billion light years ago, the cosmic microwave background it's called. And, and from that light, you can try and also extract the same number, this kind of constant curvature that you expect. And these two numbers, they, they both had quite large error bars and so were consistent for a while. But what's happened recently is that um, these error bars have gotten a lot smaller. And then now we're starting to see that there's basically a, a statistically significant difference. Yeah. And so there's a few different proposed resolutions for this tension. The jury is still very much out on exactly what the correct one is, but it's worth pointing out for the fish that are wanting to learn about dark energy, that one of the proposals to, to fix this tension is to have some rule, some equation that describes dark energy, which uh, isn't just the simple, the energy density is always constant everywhere. Um, if dark energy had some dynamics, right, if it actually changed a little bit with time, uh, this could be one way of explaining why when you look far away, you're measuring the very far past, and there you get a different number to when you measure the supernovae nearby and you're measuring it in the present day. So, you know, there's sort of this kind of growing inclination that maybe we might want uh, a more sophisticated model of, of dark energy. Mm. Um, but there's also kind of compelling theoretical reasons why you would want this. So, like I kind of mentioned earlier, there, there's just no good microscopic explanation for this simple rule, right? So, so you said earlier, it's a bit like a hack. You know, when we introduce this constant energy density, so we imagine that our universe as a box of stuff has this component that just doesn't dilute. Yeah. We're just saying that if we want these equations that Einstein gave us to describe our universe, there needs to be this extra component, this extra dark stuff. Sure, yeah. Trying to join the dots here is tricky, right? Because microscopically speaking, we think we understand the particles that make up nature. Mm. Right? We have not, not only the standard model of particle physics, but, but even zooming out a bit to the level of chemistry, we, we have protons, neutrons, we know how they bind together to form nuclei, all, all that stuff. Yeah. And so if this is your worldview of the microscopics, there's just no way to get from that constant energy density, mm. right? There's no way to get from, from your microscopic ideas to this very simple rule that empty space has this constant energy. Right. The closest thing that we've managed is this idea that, that really comes from, from quantum mechanics and, and quantum field theory, that, um, that the vacuum, so just completely empty space, can have some energy stored in it. Yeah. And the problem there is that you can take our best quantum field theories, our best quantum mechanical description of nature, and you can try and compute what should this energy be. Uh, and it's just much, much too large. You, you get a number which is huge, a number which is so large that if, if that were really the case, the universe wouldn't look anything like what we see in the night sky with our telescopes. So there's this kind of theoretical motivation, which is kind of coming from our microscopic beliefs, which is saying that this very uh, simple rule that dark energy is just this boring constant that exists everywhere in space and time is probably not going to be the final story, right? You're going to need to upgrade it from being just some constant to, to something that can change with time and respond to the other things in the universe. Mm -hmm. Is that what's happening now in the dark energy research space? Is that what people are currently working on? Yeah, I mean, people are trying all kinds of things. So this problem that I just mentioned is called the cosmological constant problem, just to, to give the fish something to Google. I assume they have Google. They, they must have Google. <laughs> so the cosmological constant problem is the source of a, of a lot of research, really trying to, to reconcile the dark energy that we seem to see in our, in our measurements 
uh, really trying to come up with some good microscopic description of that. So can you write down some theory, some model, some set of equations, which makes sense on small scales mm. and also match our observations? Can it also give you the right number, the right 70% of the universe's total energy budget uh, to kind of make sense of, of what we see in telescopes? Sure. And that's really one of the big aims, I think, for a lot of people working on, on dark energy. That's the mission. Brilliant. A huge thank you to Scott for shining a light on dark matter and dark energy. Join me next week where we're diving back into quantum mechanics. Until then, stay sharp and keep on wiggling. Goodbye.